this one time, we have a major uh, server breakdown. We're worried that we lost like all our data and basically everything. And we're in that situation for like 24 hours. Everything is down. I'm sitting on the couch at home and like all night I think, oh my God, I spent two years on this and it could all be gone. Hello again, I'm Dan Murray Serta, back for another episode of Secret Leaders, where we find out how to become a great entrepreneur. Today, I'm talking with Heine Zachariasen, the founder, multiple-time CEO, and current board member of Vivino. Vivino's mission is to help people find better wine, primarily through their mobile app, which lets you scan bottles and then reveals reviews, ratings, and more information about the drink in your hand. Very useful when you walk into a supermarket and are faced by a hundred bottles you just don't have a clue about. Heine's life began in an extraordinary place, far removed from the world of wine. So that's where we're going to begin too, in a small archipelago in the North Sea. I was born and grew up in a very, very small place in the middle of the North Atlantic called the Faroe Islands. So basically 18 rocks in the middle of the North Atlantic, but a very, very special place. You know, one of the most beautiful places in the world, I think. Very green. You feel very, very protected. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's um, also quite equal. Um, we talk about a lot about diversity and so on. Back then everyone was somewhat equal because there was, I never understood back then there was any difference between people because everyone there was like pretty white and pretty middle class. There weren't a lot of poor people. There weren't a lot of rich people. A really nice and safe childhood, I think. When did you leave the Faroe Islands? So, so for the first 20 years in the Faroe Islands and then in Denmark for many years and then the past seven up till 2020 in California. So when people try to sort of guess my English accent, it could be really, really difficult. And after I've spoken to you for like 30 minutes, like my brain tries to switch to an English accent. So I will adapt whatever. Like a chameleon. Yes, exactly. Whatever is around me somehow. So what did you want to be when you were growing up? So when you grow up in a place like the Faroe Islands, whatever is around you is basically fish, like the industry is fish. And so I looked around and said, hey, what do people that accomplish something become here? And obviously they would become fishermen. So I definitely wanted to be a captain. Uh, I think if I was somewhere else where the leaders were something else, you know, I just want to be the general or something like that. So I definitely want to be the captain. And your relationship with the rest of your family, like what was that like? Very, very good. My, my, my parents are, are both, uh, you know, we think probably call them public servants. My father was at the university. Yes, you, you know, 50,000 people in a very small place, but also a small university uh, where my, my father worked and was a teacher. And my mother was a lab technician. We have, uh, were two older brothers and then a sister that came later. And when I look at my personality, I think there is some little brother thing there competing. I remember I had a friend once, uh, or, or a business partner, and somewhat a friend, and we were negotiating a deal, and we knew each other pretty well. And, and he said to me, you know, Heine, we're, you know, we're both little brothers. We're never, ever going to agree on anything, because we're going to hold on to this toy and never let go, because that's what we're trained to do. Uh, so I think there is, there is some truth in that, that, you know, I want to show what I can do, because I am, I'm the smallest one here. And let's go a little bit further then into your journey. So, okay, you were in the Faroe Islands until 20, then what? Uh, 
Yeah, so, so then we went to Denmark where I went to business school. And uh, after three years in business school, uh, you know, started doing business right away. It's pretty clear to me that, I don't know, I just, you know, it came back to our childhood too, where, where we, you know, love building Legos. And for me, it was really in my DNA that I, I really loved building the Legos. But as soon as I was done building, I didn't want to play with them anymore. And that's just something that is sort of deep in me. I, I love to build stuff. Uh, so as soon as I was done, and I did a, uh, back here, it's like a three-year bachelor. So I did that and went straight on to start building stuff. First, it was like we did like a small consulting with doing websites and so on. This is back in late 97 or so. Did that for a few years. Then by sort of random events, I got into or stumbled upon some security stuff and did like two companies in that. First, like a small thing, then actually did something called Bullguard, where I wasn't there like day one, but we built that throughout the Ceros with actually Thais, who also became my co-founder in Vivino. And that was sort of, you know, medium successful. Like funny story is that the company that was started back in 2001 uh, last year was sold to uh, to Symantec. It lived for a very, very long time and it's still alive. And now they, uh, they bought it uh, 20 years later. I haven't been involved for the past 10 years. So have nothing to do with that. But it's funny to see still that something you built gets this far. What is small, small success and medium successful to you? Yeah, I think like it wasn't like we raised some money. When I left, we sold for, I think, like $20 million or something. So it was fine. It, like the VCs would have wanted to see like a real rocket ship and so on. I think like the real success for me is doing your first startup, like the learnings there. Just It's just incredible how much you learn, what kind of mistakes you do. And that just, you know, comes back at you later and you really, okay, this is something I can use. And that's why like second time founders are just better than first time founders. Just, you know, we've just tried a little bit more. And for me, that was really true. Can you remember any particular lessons that you're like, God damn it, I'm so glad I've been through this one before because X, Y, and Z? Yeah, I think generally I became a little bit more careful with, you know, we've raised a lot of money in Vivino too. But, and this might sound weird to some people that are involved in Vivino, but we're a little bit more conservative and careful with raising money and also making sure that there's room that you can catch up. So the amount of money you burn, as we say, doesn't get too big. You need leverage at all time. Uh, and I just remember some situations at Bullguard where there really wasn't much cash. And I really, really wanted to avoid those situations again. It's like you get up Monday morning and you know that by Friday you're going to pay these bills like or it goes horribly bad, right? And once you felt that in your body, you really are going to try and avoid that in the future. Yes, yeah, really interesting because I think, you know, you learn with these things that everything's relative, right? So like you said, you know, your team that might hear this will think well, that's a bit of an odd statement to say, uh, you know, I mean, more conservative of raising money. You know, jump jump to that part right now. How much has Vivino raised in total? Yeah, we raised, raised just over $200 million uh, so far. So Yeah, so a conservative $200 million, yeah. <laughs> yes, but it's more about when do you raise it, how how tight do you run it, meaning like how late can you raise, how close are you going to get to the edge and so on. With Bullguard, we got really close to the edge on many occasions. But with Vivino, we had some close calls here and there, but not as bad as, as I'd seen earlier. Take me through what it is that leads you from security to wine. Is it like, you know, you had so many close calls, it was the only way to calm you down, and then you were like, <laughs> I have no idea what I'm drinking, someone needs to fix this? Yeah, almost. Like, really, one of the fundamental things here was that 
I don't want to do security. Like I want to try something else. Look, I was very passionate about the business, but I decided after that I wanted to do something that was more fun, um, that was more interesting, that was not more consumer necessarily, but in a space that I found like more more fun. And and that's where wine came up. I I sort of dabbled with other ideas. Another idea was actually within football, although I, I the worst football player in the world officially. But I was fascinated by the industry and I was fascinated by maybe the lack of data in that industry. So I also thought about that. So I wanted to do something that was more more fun. And then obviously I felt like there was a problem that needed to be solved. So you talked to me about your uh, co-founder who who came along from Vivino. Talk, talk to me about like the early days. You're saying, you know, you found a problem that needed to be solved. How old were you? What was your life situation at the time? Had you made enough money, uh, you know, from shares or whatever it was in your previous business that you didn't need to work again, but you chose to? Did you have pressures from your family? Set the scene a little bit, you know, for our listeners about, you know, what time in your life you start a business like this. Yeah, and this might be a little bit atypical, right? Because I am in a situation where I live in a really non-fancy, semi-detached house in the like the way outskirts of Copenhagen, close to the airport. So, uh, and I do need to work. I, I like I have a little bit of money, and when I mean a little bit of money, I mean like a little bit of buffer. I would call and like this is this is months of of money that you you can handle, right? So, so no, I I was very very limited on that. I had lots of obligations, uh, three kids, and they were young. And now I'm trying to think back, like, yeah, my youngest would have been like two, three years old and the other ones were, were a few years older, right? So three young kids, lots of obligations. I think this is also where some people would have said, like, what the hell are you thinking? I mean, you're just mad. And people will say to me, you take chances, but I don't see it. Like, this is the only path for me. But I also realized that, hey, I'm not going to do this alone and I'm going to need some financial support pretty damn quickly. And we got that. I can I can dig deep into that. But what I also did uh, pretty quickly was get Thijs, uh, my co-founder, on board. And if we look at the two of us, we'd worked together at Bullgard for a few years, worked really well together. He is my business wife or I'm his business wife, whatever you want to call it. And now, by now, we work together for 20 years, right? So just look at understanding who does what. We overlap heavily, so we're very different, but in the end, we probably think pretty alike anyway. So I'm more on the business side, and he's more on the product side. I also know that he's good at business, obviously, at a certain level, and he can challenge me on that too. I think that's really, really healthy. And then what you have, which is is also comes over the years, is like is the trust you have, right? That's incredibly important. We know we're not going to, you know, mess things up for each other and we're going to be 100% loyal to each other. So, so I think that trust is, is really, really important. So the idea, the fundamental idea here, uh, you know, came from my head where it was, and it wasn't exactly what you see now, a typical, right? I was inspired by Internet Movie Database and, and I was thinking, how come I get a rating on a book I can get a rating on a DVD, I can get a rating even on a taxi driver these days. But when I walk into a supermarket, I will see this wall of wine and I will not know what to buy. Like, why is wine something that nobody has disrupted? And why is, is wine something where the only decision I can, or the only thing I can base my decision on here is, is looking at a label and maybe if I'm lucky, I have a price. You know, if somebody puts a frog, a pink frog on a wine label, does that mean it's a good wine or a bad wine? Like, who the heck knows? So 
that just didn't make any sense to me. So I had started work on this, this idea and pretty quickly found out, hey, it would be fantastic to have Thais on board, you know, coming back to something uh, which is incredibly important for startups. It's timing, right? So we're now in 2010 or so, and the smartphone is really starting to take off. Like the iPhone was launched in 07, the App Store opened in 08, and we're now starting to see proper traction on this thing. And people say, hey, you should make this for the phone, a smartphone. I think, yeah, maybe, maybe. But then we started thinking, okay, is there a way you can actually take a picture of this thing and then match it with the database? And then we found some guys in, in Zurich who had built this technology. And we went, I went down to them and said, hey, guys, you know, you want to do this? Can we license this for this project? And they said yes. And then we started building really, really small. I mean... We were building data. I was literally going to local wine stores in Copenhagen. I sent them an email, said, guys, I'm doing this thing. Can I come by your, your shop and I'll be there for a few hours. I'll take a picture of every single wine label in your shop. And I did that. And then we, we sent the pictures to a team in India that would add data to it because that's the fundamental problem here is that there's no data available. So... Um, we built all the data totally from scratch. So that was the, the first stage of just building the, the pictures and the wine labels. And, and just quickly, when you say there's no, there's no data, can you go a bit clearer, like what kind of data is required? Like what were you technically collecting? So, so for the image recognition, you actually need to have a picture of the label too. So you need that in order to be able to do some matches. So that's step number one, you don't have that. The root of what we're trying to do is for you to walk into a store and say, this wine I have in front of me, is it good or not so good? We were incredibly focused on that. But in order to even do that, we want to give a little bit of value, which means, okay, let's start by building some data around these wines. So what country is it from? What region is it from? What grapes are in there? What's it called? And all this. So the user gets some kind of user experience. And then hopefully we add the next layer on top. And that's the users tell us with a rating, is this good or not so good, and so on. Okay, so you're going into like random wine shops, and you're taking photos of wine, you're sending it to a database in India, I get it, okay, how long is this process? Like, how long does this take? What does success look like to you in this early stage? Are you going for fundraising? Like, what's in your mind at this point? What are you looking to achieve? Look, at that point, we're trying to build some data, knowing what we wanted to build. So at the same time, we're, we're negotiating with with the guys in Zurich and saying, hey, can we do something together here? And we figure that out. And then before we actually launch the real app, we do one more thing because we know we're going to need all these pictures. We do like a small uh, competition, like the simplest app you'll ever see. The only thing it does, it's like you can add a picture and then it goes into competition and says, hey, Dan, you're now number seven in the competition. Send four more labels and you'll be number six. And then you could win. And we convinced some people to, especially men, like they want to compete about anything. It doesn't matter. People would send all these pictures and we really got quite a lot of wine labels on that. Everything I do when I go down to a shop and scan all these pictures, that's not going to be as valuable as the users do it because whatever the users do is the right thing. Whatever the users do, you're going to get the right wines and that's what you want to focus on. Not because I went to the lowest shelf on this weird wine shop somewhere. Maybe nobody's ever going to scan that wine. So incredibly important to get in front of users as early as possible. So we got that. I remember when we launched that app, by the way, it was like, it was so simple and didn't have any features. Apple said, yeah, this is not an app. We're not even going to allow this app. So Thais, my co-founder, had to send a long email to Apple saying, no, no, there is a full infrastructure behind this. You can win all kinds of stuff. And in the end, they said, yeah, well, we'll put it in there and see what happens. 
If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. You were in Scandinavia at the time, which, you know, now has a great reputation for startups, for funding, for innovation, et cetera, et cetera. In 2010, not so much. I mean, you know, you had a few amazing iPhone companies, Rovio, et cetera. But, you know, I know it wasn't quite the same funding environment. So what did you do to get money? You know the answer to the question. It's obviously that I flew to London. So, so that is what I did, literally. So uh, I had worked a little bit with uh, Janos Fries before, one of the two founders of Skype. So what you do, you jump on a plane and say, hey, Janos, could this be something for you? And like we sat down with him and he, he doesn't do many investments, but he knew us. And I know that he talked to other people, some funds that had said, no, this is just too early and it's not interesting. And Janos has told me this since then, that when he met with other, some of the other investors that looked at it, he said to them, guys, you know, I know this is not much right now, but I know Heine and Thais, they're going to keep going until it works. And then he put in the money. I think that's such an amazing story because it kind of unfolds two things. One is that uh, when you're an entrepreneur and you're building up your career, the people that you're meeting along the way, you can't necessarily tell them a story of how great you are. You just have to demonstrate it through your actions and then your reputation follows you around and those moments come around. Um, Like you say, Vivino is not a product worth investing in, but you were people worth investing in with grit. Let's talk about this first round then. How much did you raise? Did anyone else participate? And where did that take you to? Yeah, so there was, this was only uh, Janus, actually. Uh, it was, uh, in Danish, it was like 300,000 euros, I would say, like 200,000 pounds. What that did was like we managed to release the product and get the ball rolling. And usually, you know, these rounds, whatever size you do, uh, it's usually, you know, 18 24 months or so that it, that it can take you, right? 
And when, when that money was sort of running out, we had a product, not a great product, but we had a product and we did not have a product market fit. So we, we, the next round was from a, a local fund in Copenhagen, uh, Seed Capital, and, and they put in some money, I think about a, maybe a million euro or something, maybe a little bit less. Their thing is like, they're going to come in just before they see, okay, there is potential here. We've heard about these guys. Maybe they can build something. Janus Fries is on board. Can't be, can't be that horrible. But then it really, not from the time they invested, but from the time we released the product, it was around 18 months till we started seeing, okay, now the numbers are growing. And it's just a grind. It's like improve the product every single week. Keep pushing, keep pushing. And I, I think there are many important pieces of advice I want to give people at that stage. I think don't set goals for yourself. Don't say next week I want to go from 100 to 200. I generally don't recommend that. What I want to focus on is the growth because you don't know exactly what it's going to be because you're so early stage. But rather what I think kept us going, kept us motivated was the growth. So yes, the numbers are small, but there's got to be some magic here because the numbers keep growing every single month. So, so there is something here. And if you set a number and say, no, no, we're going to do 100 this month, 200 next year. Then first of all, you know, is the number too high, too low? You know, who the heck knows? But there's a really, really good chance that you went from 100 to 120, and that was actually fantastic. But then you say, yeah, I'm kind of disappointed, didn't make the 200. But you just pulled that 200 out of your ass anyway. So focus on the growth much rather than setting specific goals at that very early stage. Mm, I love that. And just to take us sort of through the journey then, so talk us through like the growth of the company. Yeah, at the early stage growth there, it's a very small team. It's basically Tyson and I, I just can't remember exactly when we started getting people on board like, but it was a few people in one guy in, in, in Belarus, and there was a little bit of a team in India and so on. And it, that journey is 18 months of doing small improvements to the product every single week, and then trying to get some attention. We try to get more and more downloads from all kinds of places. You use whatever social media you have, which is not a lot. You try and get some press. We got a little bit lucky here and there. We targeted a few smaller blocks and said, hey, you know, we're building this thing. We think it's kind of cool. You should make something. Then the small Android block says, hey, like the first real wine app that can scan uh, is available for Android. And there were already players on the iOS. We were on both, obviously, but there was an angle to get some PR. And then we got a little bit lucky that uh, Lifehacker took that story and ran with it. So a few of those things, even though the product isn't great, did you, you're going to keep pushing uh, to get that going. And then as, as that early stage money is starting to run out, you think, okay, what's the next step here? And we sort of follow this traditional uh, route there in the way that we... The next was like a seed round, and that's where these seed capital uh, people came on board. I think they, you know, we got a pretty good deal from them. It's a local investor. They knew that product market wasn't really there yet, but they could see that we're more experienced um, uh, founders than most people. So they, you know, so we're going we're gonna to give this a shot. And now we're getting to the end of 2012. They've been on board for maybe a year or something. And then things start happening. We release it. We do a big release in, in April of 2012 where we say, okay, now we do the big upgrade. We go all native on both platforms. The app really improved quite a lot. The data was getting better every day. And the app itself just improved a lot at the time. And this was a new release. It took us a few months to uh, really improve it. But once we get to 
like late Q3 and getting into Q4, it started growing fast. We realized, okay, I think we got something now. And obviously when that happens, uh, people and investors start popping up from all kinds of corners. And uh, some of them were really, hey, you want to get in right now, boom, boom. And at the time we had enough money and still being like calling myself conservative again, but, but uh, still being somewhat conservative here. We had some investors that, that really was, were pushing hard in like Q4 of, of 2012. And they were also like, the terms weren't that good. I just kept pushing them back and said, I'm not going to do this. And then we let them actually get in with a little bit of money. So they put in a million euros at the time. Uh, I'm not sure we called it an A round. We, I don't know what we called it back then. Because I just, at that point, I had a lot of confidence. I could see like, okay, this is going to keep going. This is going to keep growing. And that turned out to be true. Once we get into like Q1 of 13, the numbers keep going up. And now we're starting to see more investors come in and say, okay, we want to talk, we want to talk. The thing about the category is that it's a, it's a like almost $400 billion category and nobody's really disrupted it. So it, there was opportunity was there, right? And, and half of the volume in dollars of the alcohol being drunk is by investors. So yes, exactly. Perfect. Oh my God. On that note, right? So I, I spoke to a fund, it's just a sort of polite uh, fund. I spoke for 15 minutes to a, a full partnership of a fund. And then I said, yeah, okay, who's, who's tried Vivino here? And like, this might've been the first, like every single person, like, and this, and it's not somebody who's invested or anything like that. It's just every single person, right? So, so they love the category, obviously, and they want to be a part of it. But once we get to 2013, we have quite a few people saying they want to do something. And one of them was, was Balderson Capital out of um, London. They were like very aggressive in a positive way. We said, no, no, we like this. We want in. I just remember also negotiating with them and saying, yeah, well, you know, I have enough money. There's no need, like, let's wait. But they kept pushing. They could see that. And this is, this is the thing about good investors. Good investors are always going to be in a hurry when they see something good. If they're good investors, they know they have to be in a hurry because whatever they see, everyone else can see too. And Roberto, who was the partner at the time, he was pushing and pushing and pushing. I remember we talked about valuation and like we talked about $20 million, I'm like, oh, fuck, that's insane. Like, it's just crazy. And then I said, yeah, well, we're not in a hurry. And then he said, like, yeah, what about 30? It's like, did we just increase the valuation by 50%? And for me, that was just like insane. But, but when you think about it, it really isn't for an investor because they had made the decision at the time that they thought this could be a unicorn, right? And then it doesn't really matter if you buy it at 20 or 30. That turned out to be a bigger raise. We we got Baldus and Creandum, who had put in a little bit of money before, Swedish Creandum, that also was an investor in First Institutional and Spotify. So we got those two in a combined round of $10 million. So, I mean, for me, raising an A round, that kind of, for me, like, holy crap, this is, this is big. And I know A rounds are raised all the time, but I think as a founder, that is quite cool to get to that milestone, uh, I must say. So you raised this money. It sounds like to me one of the main things that you got from this realm was confidence, actually, was some self-belief that you've got a real opportunity ahead of you. You've got some of the smartest investors in Europe banging at your door trying to help you build this business and make it work. What was it like to suddenly have a lot of capital, presumably a much shorter time frame in terms of how to deploy it, knowing that you're going to have to really go at growth? Like, How was that sort of uh, new paradigm for you? It's really quite interesting, right? A couple of things I think I want to I talk about that people might not you know, think about when these things happen. First of all, 
when you race, when you're in the early process of racing around, you think like, oh my God, this is wild. We need to really go party once we get this closed. And then what, what always happens in reality is like, it takes so long and you're so tired and that once you close and the money gets into the bank, obviously once you see the money come in, I remember a few experiences where I look at like, holy shit, yeah, the money's in the bank. And that's when it's, it's done. Like you almost start crying and sometimes literally you do. But it's just a crazy experience. But at the same time, you're also tired. You, you thought you were going to party and at some point like, fuck, I'm just glad it got closed because it's always so bloody painful. So that's the first emotion. The second emotion that comes along is that, okay, they put in $10 million. They really believe in you. Like, you really have to step up now. Uh, so it really, for someone like me, it feels like, okay, I really have an obligation to do my utter best at this point. Thinking about it going from just two guys, you know, building this app, some guys in India, and now you have to, you know, spend this money and, and build this thing. How did you think about, you know, culture, growing the business, like where you're hiring people, what the business does, where's it going? Like, how was the step change for you? Because obviously, sort of first major startup that you're founders of, um, but not your first rodeo by any means. So, you know, how is this where your previous experience starts to really hit home? Yeah, I think so. And but also like our ambition level, right? I mean, we always knew that, hey, this would, could be something. But at that time, we started thinking, okay, you know, we could be the winner in this space. We could be a really big global player. And we're not at that point, right? We have a million downloads, so it's not, it's not horrible. The other thing, which I think is really was crucial to our thinking back then, is like our biggest user base at the time, not more than half our users, but our biggest country was the U.S. And when you open your phone, you look at all the apps you have on your phone, you realize that most of the winners in there they're in the U.S. or they're from the U.S. and most of them are from a relatively small piece of real estate called Silicon Valley. And we had thought that already saying, you know what, if you're going to win this space, you probably want to win the U.S. and then you win the world. And we had pretty fierce competition at the time from Silicon Valley. We had a, a very competent team competing with us in San Francisco. And we said to ourselves, you know, we got to win the U.S. and made the decision that I was going to relocate uh, to the U.S. and be based in Silicon Valley to build, you know, be the CEO, build part of the commercial operation there but also marketing, communication, all those things, really built the U.S. market from Silicon Valley. That was amazing, obviously, Like, but I was moving with, with three children and a wife, and it was not easy. It was obviously fantastic, but really also not easy for my 16-year-old daughter and all those things. So overall, amazing. But when you build a startup, you have to think about the people around you. You're not the only one doing the work here you're not the only one paying for whatever success is out there. There's a full family backing you, and they're also paying whatever price there is to be paid here. And, and you should never, ever forget that. And you wouldn't be able to do these things without that backing. That can be anything from your kids to your wife to your parents or whoever supports you. I think that's incredibly important. Um, and I couldn't go alone to the U.S. If we wanted to do this, I was going to go like full-on family and so on. What's something that you would do differently if you could do it again? Was there any like big lessons you learned about moving yourself and a family over to a new country and starting work? Probably a few things. Uh, maybe not necessarily what we would do different, but something others should think about too. One of them is if you only need to be in the US, you don't have to be on the West Coast if you're a European startup, you probably want to be on the East Coast. Obviously, the, a lot of the money is on the West Coast. 
but it's really quite a lot easier to do European business on the East Coast. The three-hour time difference between East and West matters a lot. So I think that's one thing. I'm not sure we had that choice. We wanted to be close to the industry, and we actually wanted to be in Silicon Valley. We might also wanted to raise some money there. We didn't know that. And so on. So we wanted the full package. We also wanted to be close to Apple, Google, Facebook, all those guys. So I don't think we had a choice. But if you have a choice, I think that's something really to think about. Uh, A couple of other things, like my co-founder and I, Tyson and I, like we talked about earlier, look, we have a lot of trust. I didn't have to check him. He didn't have to check me. We, We trusted each other. We knew what we were able to do. And if you don't have that and you want to split up the team, you're going to mess it up. So... Be very, very careful with that. Doing two teams uh, at that early stage, it's it's really, really difficult. So should we have done it later? Maybe. So so if there's any learning, should we done a little bit later? Maybe that would have been a good idea, yes. But we, we, you know, we had the chance, we had the money, let's do this. But maybe waiting a few years uh, could have been a thing. What I usually say also, I think is, is important here, is that when it comes to going to the US, either you go when you're like a kid and don't have any costs and you can do that on you know on a few dollars or you wait till you have a shitload of money you cannot go there with a few hundred thousand dollars in the bank it's just too expensive too difficult to do business in the u.s you need money so if you haven't raised an a round don't even think about it yeah that's great advice thank you when you're raising your most recent round was just over 150 million dollars right yeah when you're raising around that large, like, what is the pitch? Like, what are you saying that you're going to do with that money? Without sounding stupid, like, <laughs> can you explain to people why uh, your proposition requires that much money to fulfill its promise? I think one of the core things here, and this wasn't always true for us, is that you have to be able, obviously, the opportunity has to be there. There's a chance of this being successful. All those things have to be there. But also, you have to be able to deploy that money. Otherwise, there's no point. So you have to be able to say, okay, opportunity is big enough. We have the user base. We can deploy money to get more in return. And like, it's not really rocket science. And then you say, okay, good. What is the plan to actually do that? And for us, you, I've been pretty open about that. It was basically three things. First of all, uh, our tech team, our product engineering really isn't that big. Just to give you an idea, like our Android team, when we raised this round, was two people. Obviously, they were incredibly good and, and we got a lot out of them, but there was two people building the Android app uh, at the time, a little bit more on iOS. It was a lean team all around, so we really wanted to double down on the product engineering. So that was one thing we said, we can deploy some money here. I think that's that's good. Second thing is another complexity in our business, which is sometimes a little bit painful, is that we sell wine in 17, actually from this week, 18 countries, which means that at the time we raised this round, we were like 200 people, and most of them were either in Copenhagen or in San Francisco. So the rest of the team was really spread out with like two, three people in each market. And uh, we really wanted to double down on that and say, no, no, the UK, say Germany and a few other markets, they are key markets for us. We need to invest in those markets so we can be an equal player with the rest of the guys. We were competing e-commerce wise with with companies that have were much, much bigger, right? So we need to double down on those markets. So it was about becoming really strong in the most important like key markets. And finally, there is, there's marketing, right? So we have over 50 million users right now, and almost all of that is organic. So we haven't paid for any users, which is incredible, but we also wanted to, to start building that engine that we could do marketing and, and grow the user base with, with uh, marketing. So those three things were the, were the key things we're going for. 
And when someone asks you today, what does Vivino do? What do you say to that? Like, what is your core proposition to an unknowing customer? I think the core thing is the same thing as it's always been. We help people drink better wine. And that story is the same as you walk into a supermarket, scan a bottle of wine, you can see if it's good or not so good, should I buy it or not, all the way till today, where we now are a, a, you know, a marketplace, community-driven and data-driven marketplace for wine, which means that we still do the same thing. We want to help you drink better wine. As uh, simple as that, or it sounds simple, but it, it's, you know, to build the back end for that is pretty complicated. But for the user, it's about helping you drink better wine. Might be private information, obviously, if it is, tell me. But, you know, when you're doing a deck for how big this can go and what you're looking to achieve and stuff, what is in your vision? Is this like an acquisition play to a behemoth like an Amazon? Like Who, who is interested in, in your mind in buying this business or is that absolutely not an end goal at all? I think that's become clearer over the years. I um, In the early days, you really don't want to focus on it. You want to focus on, you know, solving a problem, building a business, and do not build for an exit in the early days, at least. The thing about building for an exit is that you say, look, we want to build this company, we want to sell it to Google. Okay, good. What if Google doesn't want to buy it? Now you have some bastard that you built for Google and isn't really a business or a product or anything, right? So we try and not do that. You try to build an amazing product and an amazing business. But I think where we are now, where we've reached the size we have and so on, I think an IPO would make a lot of sense uh, within the next few years. It just makes a lot of sense to make a company like Vivino a public company at some point. It doesn't mean that somebody's not going to buy us at some point, but, uh, you know, I think that's the route we're probably aiming for. Yeah, you can see it in the horizon. It kind of feels like a logical fit. Um, you can see people getting excited about that as well. I mean, the, you know, the other thing is it's so it's so natural, right? What does everyone celebrate with? Well, the products that they'll find on your app. So <laughs> it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. For sure. You've moved in and out of the CEO position at Vivino a few times, right? Why is that? Can you talk to us a little bit about these transitions? A few times sounds really bad. No, um, <laughs> so, so we... You're CEO today, not tomorrow, but you're back in the job on Friday, right? <laughs> Yes, exactly. Let me give you a quick one on that. I think like a journey like this, all the different stages require different skill sets. I have a certain skill set, but I'm I'm not really good at everything just like just like everybody else, right? So when we got to 2018, the business was becoming much more operationally heavy and it relied a lot on, you know, we're going to do more transactions, partners and so on, and I found that to be, you know, less interesting. As my philosophy has always been, if you want to build something, if you want to do something, if you can find somebody who's done it before, then you definitely should hire that person and get them to, to do that job. Because, look, founders are very often sort of, when you say, jack of all trades or whatever they say. And, and that's also true here. And we ended up finding somebody that we really liked, like had, had built something in a similar way as Vivino, and we hired that person. And he was with us uh, for a year and a half. And then we realized that there isn't a match here. Culturally, it, it isn't working for either of us. And we decided to go our, our separate ways. And this is in uh, 20, late 2019. And so, you know, what do we do? I step back in as CEO and pretty quickly the world goes upside down. So although we had said, hey, we decided that we want to have a, another CEO here, I sort of have to stay on board as this world is, is upside down. So obviously the crazy year of 2020 comes along and we do incredibly well. 
And then by 2021, we sort of started looking again and saying, okay, what do we got here? And just recently, we were very fortunate to sign with, uh, with a new CEO who joined us in July, and it's going really well. What's it like emotionally letting go of a CEO? Look, first time, it was really, really difficult, I must say. I remember like people said to me, look, honey, you're doing fantastic. It's really good. And I was like burning inside. It was difficult. I was like, you know, you're sitting in your chair. I, I, I wanted to stay with the company, like at least for some time. Like I had a different role, obviously wanted to onboard and so on. I also remember, you know, sitting in my chair, looking across the office and I see there's this big meeting and everybody's in that meeting. And it's like, how can they have a meeting and I'm not in it? Like that feels wrong, but like, I think everyone who goes through that journey, who's passionate about it, will experience that. I think a lot of founders are passionate people and somewhat obsessed people too. So, which means that if you take this away from, uh, from them, you have to fill up that hole somewhere. I, at that time, started to doing YouTube videos. And I mean, that was incredibly helpful for me because if I kept looking at these numbers on Bavino, I'm going to be like as obsessed as I am and say, oh, that number's not right. Go do something. And I'm not supposed to tell people what to do. So you have to back off a little bit, create some room and so on, but also fill up that hole or else you'll, you'll be somewhere doing something you shouldn't be doing. So just talking like a couple of things then. So what is the biggest failure of your career? Like, can you think back to anything like major that's happened? There was one, this one time, uh, this is early Vivino, and um, we have a major server breakdown. And look, Tyson and I are both pretty technical, or just not technical at the sort of AWS level, uh, meaning understanding what the heck happened. And at the time, we're worried that we'd lost like all our data and basically everything. And we're in that situation for like 24 hours. Everything is down. I'm sitting on the couch at home and like all night thinking, oh my God, I spent two years on this and it could all be gone. And there was something, obviously we had a backup. I mean, we did, but it just, it broke somehow. And that situation, it really burns when you have like a full night where you just can't sleep at all because of this. And that's rare for me. I sleep pretty well most of the time. You was like, okay, you know, it's not like I'm going to take every precaution in the world, but this kind of stuff is not going to happen again. Um, so, so these things, you know, you can really feel them in your body and, and, and they're incredibly painful. Amazing. Heino, thank you so much for your time. It's been awesome. Where can people follow you, find your YouTube channel and get stuck in, obviously, with Vivino? Yes, obviously the, the app is available in the App Store and Play Store. Uh, just look for Vivino and, and you'll find it right there. You won't, you won't regret that if you drink wine. And then, uh, you know, on YouTube, just search for Raw Startup and, and you get all my videos. And you must, must watch all of them. There, I'm very proud of most of them. Let's put it that way. And thank you very much for having me on. It's been a great pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, dude. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media, with Will Stolomon, our head of podcast, bringing it all together.